Christmas is uh, Jesus' birthday, right? And uh, so we think about the baby Jesus at Christmas time. Wonderful thing to think about. And I think when we, when we think about Jesus or someone mentions Jesus to you, uh, we get certain images that pop into our head about Jesus. And uh, at Christmas, I think one of those images is the little baby, like up here. Um, but what are some other images that pop into your head when you, think, uh, when you hear about Jesus? What are some things that you, you can just say them? Nothing pops into your head two days after Christmas, actually. Long hair. Long hair. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Emmanuel, which means God with us. Others? Walking on water. Welcoming the little children. Feeding the 5,000. Any others? Ideas? The cross. It's good. Okay, yeah. Um, I heard a, f- a few things that were kind of like miracle worker, right? Kind of in that category. Surprised no one said teacher, but that's maybe another image we think of with Jesus. Sorry? I can't hear you. Dying for our sins. Okay, great. Um, I think as well we might if we started to list all different words so we could describe Jesus, you would come up with a really, really, really long list. Um, but you might put in things like friend or guide or Lord or Savior, all of those kinds of things. Now, today, though, I want to talk to you about something that is maybe on a, a grander scale of thinking about Jesus that shows up in the Gospel of John that we heard from. Something that I don't think we necessarily immediately jump to when we think of Jesus. We don't really immediately jump to Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Do we? Right? When we think of God, we might think of Father. We might think of Holy Spirit. But when we think of Jesus, we we don't necessarily always go, oh yes, the second person of the Trinity. We even don't really immediately jump to thinking about Jesus as our God, do we? Right? We'll come up with all these other words to describe Jesus, but we won't immediately jump to, oh, God. Yet the Gospel of John opens with this beautiful uh, prologue that puts Jesus in that place. We don't immediately jump to Jesus as God, Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, yet he is, and that's right where the writer of John wants us to go. What John assumes is something that is a particular doctrine within the church is the pre-existence of Christ. And basically what that means is, is that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, has always existed along with the Father and the Spirit, And Jesus is the incarnation of that existence that has always been there. Okay, so it's not as though there was nothing before Jesus. Um, It's that Jesus is the human embodiment of the second person of the Trinity. Okay, so Christ has always been there. The other thing that shows up in John is a particular word that we need to know, and that word is the word word. (laughs) 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's the opening line. Now that word is a particular Greek word. Uh, and the Greek word is logos. It's actually quite important for us to know this as people who believe in Jesus, to understand and know this word logos, and to have a bit of a grasp of what it means. It's a Greek word, and at its basic meaning, it, it can mean word, it can mean uh, a ground for something, or a plea for something, or an opinion, or an expectation, or speech, or an account of something, a retelling of something, or it can also mean to reason. Now, in Greek thought, before Jesus, around 500 BC, logos actually became a technical term that was used in Greek philosophy. And it was generally used um, as the term for a principle of order and knowledge, okay? Now, in the field of rhetoric, which was really important to the Greeks as well, logos meant reasoned discourse, or it could mean the argument for something. Um, recently, a professor named uh, Jean uh, Fanstock wrote about logos in a secular context, not in a Christian context, and she defined it as a premise. So if you think about an argument that's made, the premise is your starting point for the argument. Okay? And this is actually where we get the English word logic from, logos. Stoic philosophers that came along a little later, but might have been around in the time of Jesus as well, they identified the term logos with the, what, with what they called a divine animating principle that pervaded the entire universe. So what is a divine animating principle? What does that really mean? Well, divine is God, is what we would say. Or in the Greek thought, gods, because they believed in a, a multitude of gods, right? Um, and an animating principle, uh, something that animates something else, is, is something that gives something else life, right? So when you, uh, if we're going to take an inanimate object, that's an object that doesn't have life, and we're going to give it life, then we would be animating that object, or that's where we get animation from, right? Um, so they said, this is the... Uh, the Logos is the divine animating principle that pervades the universe. So the, the reason why we have life in the universe is because of this principle, this Logos. Now, I'm telling you all of this because we're going to walk through this, this text from John. And if we know this about Logos, particularly this last piece about this divine animating principle, it kind of gives us a bit of insight into what John was talking about and the kinds of people he was relating to. So we start at the beginning of this. It's in the beginning was the word, and John is telling a creation story, right? The, the first couple of words of the Bible are in the beginning, in Genesis 1. And now John chapter 1, in the beginning. But he doesn't say in the beginning God created, like in Genesis. He says in the beginning was the Logos, this divine animating principle, this thing that gives life to everything. And the Logos was with God. 
Well, to a Greek philosopher, that would have made sense. Well, if there is a God and there is this principle behind things that gives life, then they should be together. They should be there at the beginning of things. That would make sense. The Logos was with God. Okay. But the end of his first sentence does something that no one had really quite done before. And the Logos was God. So there's something about, there's some distinction, the Logos was with God, but there's also this unity, the Logos was God. And he goes back again in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. So this kind of makes sense with that idea of this principle that gives life, except John is saying that's actually a person. There's a personality to it, which is why our English translations have he in there instead of it. So it's not an it, it's a he. And everything was created through this logos. Interestingly, if you want to read into Genesis at the beginning, God is actually speaking things into existence in Genesis. And he says things like, let us make... Who's he talking to? (laughs) Well, maybe he's talking to the second and third person of the Trinity. So everything's been created through this logos. What has come into being in him was life. That's that animating principle. And the life was the light of the people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So there's creation, according to John. All things are created. Life is put into the universe. Life is put into the world. We can look around and we can see this wonderful life that's been given. And that is the light. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. It cannot be put out. John then switches gears a little bit and says, there was a man who was sent from God whose name was John. He's talking about John the Baptist, who happened to be Jesus' relative, likely his cousin. And he came, and we heard about him in Advent, about coming and proclaiming about repentance and bringing good news. And he was the precursor to Jesus, kind of setting up the fact that Jesus is going to come. And that's exactly what John, in the Gospel of John, tells about John, John the Baptist. So this man was sent from God, his name was John, and he came as a witness to testify to the light, the light that is in the world, this life that is is there, so that all might believe through him, through him the light, the Logos. Now he himself, he, John, was not the light, but he came just to testify to the light. So let's not get confused, John is not the one, John is not the light of the world, John is going to point to it. And then verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. So John, is in his gospel, is saying a few different things. He's saying the light is already in the world, but then also the light is coming into the world. So something additional or something extra is going to happen with this light. 
So we have the presence of the Logos all around us. We can see it all around us, or him all around us, in a sense. But he's coming into the world in a particular kind of way, in a different kind of way. Now, the gospel writer maybe should have, uh, you know, we shouldn't maybe tell them what to do, but um, maybe should have just jumped down to verse 14 because we would have had this really nice paragraph here that would have made a, a lot more sense. Right, so he says, John came, he came as a witness to testify to the light that all might believe in him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. That's verse 9, and verse 14 would have been, and the word became flesh and lived among us. And that is talking about what the technical term is incarnation. That's the incarnation. So you have this pre-existent logos, which is the second person of the Trinity, who is everything's being created through him. We can see evidence of his light in the world, but he actually became flesh, became a human being, and lived among us. This lived among us phrase, actually the, the technical Greek word is a word that means uh, to tabernacle or camped out. <laughs> to tent. <laughs> okay. Um, now, tabernacle also has the overtones of the Old Testament tabernacle, which was the precursor to the temple and was the place where God's presence dwelt amongst his people. So it also has that. But I kind of like the idea of camping out with uh, Jesus came to camp out with us um, and tent with us. Um, Eugene Peterson translates this in the message as um, the word uh, moved into the neighborhood. Um, and, uh, and that, that is really what the point of this is. It's not trying to say, uh, we're not trying to get at really complicated theology here necessarily. It is complicated. Um, but the point of it is to say that Jesus came to be with us, to live next door. That, that's what Eugene Peterson drives at in his translation. And I think what John was getting at in this phrase is the word became flesh and lived among us. Um, it's quite important to know that he's right there. He's close. Um, and that continues, that sentence continues, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. So he connects him back to God the Father, back to the first person of the Trinity. We've seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son. And back then, it was a belief that the son actually reflected um, or represented the Father in, in human relationships, okay? And so, um, so that makes a lot of sense. So John, John is also saying this logos, this divine principle that now becomes flesh is the Son of God. He is God, and he's the Son of God. And he's walking among us. He lived among us. We've seen his glory. Now, that would be great if that's uh, the order in which John wrote things, that would have made a lot more sense, except I just left out three verses for you. Okay, Sandwiched in between the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world and then the word became flesh is this. He was in the world and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. 
But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Uh, he had to complicate everything all up there, didn't he? Why, why this is complicated, at least why I think it's complicated, is that it's actually kind of hard to decipher who this is talking about. Um, yes, it's talking about the word. It's talking about Jesus, right? We've established that, that this logos, this word, this divine principle behind everything in the universe and behind creation even, that he, that actually is the second person of the Trinity, actually is Jesus. We've established that. And it's still talking about that, but, but who... Who is the world and who are his own and who is this section for? And I think you can read it in three ways. And this is actually typical of John's gospel. Um, Almost all of John's gospel you can read in at least three ways. Um, And John, I think, actually was a master at doing this, that he wrote in such a way that there are layers of meaning in the text. So you can read it over and over again and you will find different layers uh, within the text. Um, and it's quite fascinating. So I'm going to give you three different ways that we might think about these, these words. And basically, the, the gist of it is that the, that the Logos is in the world. The world came being through him. The world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who receive him, he gave power to become children of God. Okay, that's, the, that's the basic gist. Now, this could be directed at the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, and particularly the Jewish nation before Jesus ever showed up, before the incarnation ever happened, okay? So he could be kind of jumping back in time a little bit and saying, well, yeah, he was in the world. Like, we could look around and we could see the logos around us, that light that enlightens everyone and all living things, that evidence was there. Yet the world did not know him, and that's fine, because that just means we didn't recognize that that's what was going on. And he came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. That could still possibly be talking about before Jesus himself ever came, that the Jewish people had some sort of special knowledge or special wisdom about God, that the Logos was somehow given to them in a more special way, Some scholars have even equated this with the giving of the law that was given to Israel, but not to other nations, and was given to them as a way for them to become light to the nations. He came to them, but his own people did not accept him. And if you go read the Old Testament, you find that happens over and over again. Is they're given the law, they're asked to come back to the way God wants them to live, and over and over again, they fail, they fail, they fail, they fail, until Jesus is finally given, and it opens up a whole new way of relating to God. The second way of reading this might be still about the Jewish people, but it's, but it's after Jesus has come. That in essence, in these three verses, John is giving you a little summary of the story he's about to tell you. Okay? So he was in the world. Um, Jesus himself was in the world. But John is telling it in past tense. And the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own. He's talking about Jesus himself, the person Jesus, coming first to the Jewish nation, and his own people did not accept him. 
But now to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Right? That fits too, doesn't it? Right? So it's sort of pre-resurrection Jesus, but it's in Jesus' own time that kind of tells his story. He shows up to the people of Israel, and by and large, they actually don't accept him. But to all who do receive him, he gives them power to become the children of God. In other words, it actually isn't about your Jewish heritage or anything like that. It's if you receive Christ, you now can be a child of God. But there's also a third way to read this, and that is that this is actually for all of us. And it's post-resurrection, post-Jesus going up to heaven. It's for now. And we look back on his time. He was in the world. And the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. That, yeah, that describes where we are. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. It can be easy to say, well, okay, we'll blame you know, the Jewish nation for... Uh, for crucifying Jesus, and we'll, we'll separate that somehow from ourselves. But I don't know about you, but there are times in our lives where, where Jesus comes to us, we're his own, and yet we don't accept him. We kind of push him away a little bit. But then we have the good news that follows But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. This is not something that only happened in Jesus' lifetime. That's way in the past. This is now. This is now. All who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives power to become children of God. And it's not, you you find later in John's gospel, a famous passage about being born again. And uh, the person he's talking to, Nicodemus, is confused by it and says, well, how, how can I enter again into my mother's womb and be born? What are you talking about, Jesus? How can I be born again? And, and this is actually foreshadowed in this prologue, this conversation. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God who were born not of blood, right? You're not from the right bloodline, you're not, you don't have to be Jewish, you don't have to, it's not about your family heritage or your background or anything like that, not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, so you're not, it's, we're not talking about your human birth, but of God. You will have a rebirth as a child of God simply for receiving him and believing in his name. Maybe it wasn't an accident to put that paragraph in that particular place. Because if we read that as this is about us, this is, this is the key to, to relating to God and to having life in its full, to becoming a true child of God, 
than what verse 14 does, that famous verse about God moving into the neighborhood. As John then says, so let me tell you the story about how this happened. Let me tell you how God accomplished this. Right? So he came to his own people. They did not accept him, but to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Children of God who were born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. And the word, the logos, became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Do you want to hear the rest of the story when he says that? I do. How much time you got? We're blessed because we have God's word, Jesus, and God's word, scripture. So we get to go and we get to read the rest of the story. We get to go and read the gospel of John and of Matthew and of Mark and of Luke and remember how God did it how God welcomes us in as his children. We have the promise today. So when we think of Jesus, and we think of of cute baby Jesus uh, lying in a manger, and we'll think of the teacher and the miracle worker and the Lord and the Savior, those are all good. But let's not forget this grand scale that God is operating on. Here's this plan from the beginning, all things created through him, always there, always existing with God and then given as a gift, became a human being, lived among us, so that when we receive him, we too can be children of God. Thanks be to God for that gift. Amen.